Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible or, or if you don't have one, uh, you should be one in one of the seats in front of you. We're going to be this morning in Matthew uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. So let's turn there together. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. So as Pastor Daniel was saying, today is my birthday. And uh, uh, so thank you, thank you. Um, it, on my birthday, I get to preach on the birth of Christ. So that's like really fun to me. I'm, um, I already started off the day good with a present for my wife, some nerdy Lord of the Rings stuff for those of you guys who are in, into that <laughs> stuff. And so we're already off to a good day. And uh, um, But uh, so this is a treat. Uh, as well to be able to preach uh, from God's word on the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. As we enter uh, this Christmas season this year, the temptation for us this year, as it is every year, is to let the familiar scriptures that either foretell the birth of Christ or recount the birth of Christ in the Gospels or expound on the birth of Christ in the coming of Christ to, to let those no longer move us. Uh, we can get caught in the trap of skimming the birth narratives of Jesus because, after all, we've heard them dozens, if not hundreds, of times. But when that tendency just to skim over the Christmas story, the story of the birth of Christ, comes to us, we need to do the opposite. We need to slow down. There is gold for us to be found in the gospel accounts of Jesus' birth. There's gold for us in the Old Testament prophecies that foretold the coming of Christ. There's gold for us in the scriptures that expound to us the theological significance of the word becoming flesh. So what a tragedy uh, it is if we become dull to the moment that light broke into the darkness in the coming of Jesus. What a tragedy it would be for us to be unmoved by God humbling himself and lying in a manger. The story of the birth of Christ is, as I've heard it put, ancient but never old. It's eternally relevant. It keeps working on our hearts. It keeps revealing more to us of the person and the work of Christ, and it keeps reminding us of the depths and the lengths to which God was willing to go in order to rescue a people for himself. So as we look together this morning at these familiar verses, may God both reveal new truths to our hearts, and may he take the old truths that we've known for so long and move and melt our hearts once again with them. So we're going to be looking this morning at the last section of Matthew chapter 1. If you're taking notes this morning, if you have the, the bulletin handout on the back there, just so you know, just so you could follow. Uh, we're going to just walk through the story for the, the first part of our, our time and during this message together, and then we're going to get into those three main points. So you probably just have like one space for like a third of the message. So, um, so just, just to let you know, we'll, we'll jump into those three main points of truths of Christ uh, after we kind of walk through this story together. So let's listen together to the words of Matthew under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he records and recounts to us the events surrounding the birth of Christ. 
Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and they called his name Jesus. So Matthew, immediately following his genealogy of Jesus in verses 1 through 17, begins his gospel recounting the events that surrounded the birth of Christ. And Matthew, as we see here, focuses not so much on Mary, although he mentions Mary. Matthew focuses on Joseph. So Luke's got, Luke in his gospel focuses primarily on Mary. Luke here, I think, because... Uh, Joseph, being in the, the family line of King David, focuses much on Joseph in his birth narratives uh, of surrounding the birth of Christ. So we don't know much about Joseph from the Gospels, but what we can see, as we see here, is that he was truly a righteous and godly man, and his story was about to be swept into the greatest story of God sending his long-awaited Messiah into the world. So let's look at a few details here um, from uh, these these details that Matthew does give us uh, about the the birth of Christ. So so Matthew begins in verse 18 by introducing Mary and Joseph, who were at this time in the story betrothed. It's not really a, a word that we use anymore. It's similar to our idea of engagement, but it was a lot more serious an engagement. Uh, it was a legal binding commitment that a, a young man and young woman would make to one another that to end that betrothal would be equivalent to divorce. So it was, it was a legal binding commitment before they were actually, before they were wedded, before they were actually married, they were betrothed to one another. And a betrothed couple were considered, actually considered husband and wife. You'll notice that Joseph in verse 19 is referred to as Mary's husband. Yet during their betrothal, they were still to live separately and refrain from any sexual relationships until their marriage. And Matthew says, as Matthew says in verse 18, it was before they came together. So at this point in time, Mary and Joseph were legally bound to each other to be married And any kind of sexual relationship with each other or with any other was completely forbidden by God's law. So no wonder the dilemma that Joseph found himself in when Matthew records in verse 18 that Mary was found to be with child. So 
We know from Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 1 that Mary had, even before she was pregnant with Jesus, she had uh, the angel Gabriel appear to her, reveal to her that you are going to conceive and bear a son. You will call his name Jesus. Mary rightfully wonders, how is this going to be? The angel fills her in on the details that the Holy Spirit, through a miraculous work, would cause her to conceive. And Mary entrusts herself to the will of God and gives herself to, to the plan of God in this. Luke then records that Mary, with haste, goes to her relative Elizabeth, who the angel Gabriel also revealed. In her old age, she had miraculously conceived a child. Uh, not in the same way, but in her old age, she had a son. So Mary goes and lives with Elizabeth for about three months, Luke tells us. After that time, Mary returns to Nazareth. And probably not too long after her return back to Nazareth, Joseph begins to notice uh, um, that Maybe Mary ate a little bit too much at Elizabeth. No, no, uh, no. Uh, she is clearly with child now. So you can imagine what was going on in Joseph's mind and heart. Here is the woman that he loved and was betrothed to be married to. And for all he could see, she had been unfaithful to him and immoral. So Joseph, he must have been clearly broken over for all that he could see was Mary's unfaithfulness and immorality. And Joseph could have responded in anger and divorced her publicly for her infidelity. So he could have made this a very public event uh, so that everyone would know she's been immoral. I'm publicly divorcing her for what she's done to me. But Joseph, Matthew describes to us, was a just or a righteous man. So instead of shaming Mary publicly with a public divorce, he chose to end the betrothal privately. In that course of action, Joseph being a righteous man, he, he, both, he would not sweep over Mary's actions or what he, what he thought were Mary's actions and Mary's sin, but he would also deal with the situation in the most gentle way possible. So, not, so as not to make this a public shaming of Mary. See, biblical righteousness is not merely a matter of, of keeping God's commands, although it is certainly never less than that. But biblical righteousness is always joined with biblical mercy, biblical gentleness. So just as God is both fully righteous and unimaginably merciful, so his people, made righteous by grace, will reflect the righteous and merciful heart of God toward sinners. So think of how often God has dealt with you in your sin. Haven't you found the words of Psalm 103.10 to be proven true for you and how God deals with you? It says, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Hasn't God done that way too often for, for all of us? He hasn't given us what we deserve. He's dealt gently with us in our sin. And that kindness and the gentleness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. Yes, there are times when God deals severely with us for our sin. And he does that out of love for us to see us 
to repentance, but God often deals with us, not as our sins deserve, but in gentleness and kindness that is intended to lead us to repentance. So although this story is not primarily about Joseph, because Matthew describes him as a just and righteous man, Joseph truly is an example for us. Just as the Apostle Paul can say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So, So as we see God's people throughout Scripture exemplifying righteousness, they are truly examples worthy to be imitated. And Joseph is an example worthy to be imitated here. He dealt gently with Mary and what he perceived to be her sin. Just as Galatians 6.1 says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. I wonder if that's how you deal with the sins of your kids, your family members, your, your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors who fail you. Do you, do you respond with self-righteous anger or do you respond with gentleness? Not covering over sins, not pretending that they haven't happened, but dealing with others in their sin in the most merciful way and gentle way that God would have you. Joseph, and this is an example of righteousness, but even Joseph's, in his righteousness, he was not omniscient. As we all know, we, 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 we have the full story ahead of us. Joseph, for all he knew, Mary had been unfaithful to him. And this, as far as he could tell, was the best course of action, but he was limited in his knowledge of the miraculous nature of Mary's pregnancy. So, so God sends an angel to Joseph in a dream to reveal to him the true nature of Mary's pregnancy. In verse, verses 20 through 21, Mary recounts, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the angel reveals to Joseph what he would have never known on his own, that the baby in Mary's womb was conceived by the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit. He also tells Joseph that this baby is going to be a boy and that they are to name this boy Jesus. As we'll see shortly, there's amazing theological significance to that name. So you can imagine the shift in Joseph's thinking (laughs) Uh, uh, that this very night when the angel appears to him. One moment he had made up his mind that the best course of action would be to quietly divorce Mary. The next moment, he learns that he's about to be the adoptive, legal father of the savior of the world. So how's that for God changing your plans? (laughs) So, So Joseph receives this astounding message. Matthew comments in verse 23, all this took place to fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. We'll look further into that prophecy in, in just a few minutes as well. So, Joseph wakes up from this dream and this appearance of this angel to him within the dream. And what does he do? He immediately obeys. The angel told him, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. And what does he do? Immediately, he goes and takes Mary as his wife. But as Matthew says, they refrain from any kind of sexual activity until after 
Jesus had been born. So Joseph's unquestioning obedience to the Lord again shows his righteous character. He responds like Mary did, who when she learned of God's plan and, and, and purpose for her to bear the Son of God as a virgin, she said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And Joseph, when he receives this message from God, he follows the Lord's plan for him, no matter what it was. None of us are ever going to receive a message from an angel like Joseph received that anything like this at all, but you have the revealed will of God which is just as clear to you as God saying to Joseph through an angel, you are to be the adoptive father of the Christ. All right, and Joseph says, I'm going to obey. I'm going to follow. The, the scriptures are equally clear and so much of what they, they tell us. It's clear the will of God for us. And our response as Joseph did, although not perfectly, he was a sinner like we are, but Joseph his response of obedience is an example for us as well, to follow the Lord, no matter his plan, no matter his commands, no matter what he's calling to, in obedience and faith. But like I said, this, this, as, as much of an example as Joseph is for us, he's not the main point of the story. The human characters of Scripture are never the main point of the story. The main point of of every story and of the story of the Bible is, is God. There, there are certain heroes, we might call them heroes in Scripture, but there's one hero, and that's God, and that's the Savior, Jesus Christ. So, so what do we find out from these few short verses of the person and work of Christ? And this is where we get to our three points uh, in our outline. First of all, a virgin conceives. Jesus was conceived of a virgin. In verse 18, we're told that Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. That doesn't tell us a lot. Uh, it just says it's from the Holy Spirit. Luke actually gives us more detail in Luke 1, 34 to 35, where Luke, Luke writes this, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born shall be called Holy, the Son of God. So, the angel Gabriel tells Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And that, is the, and that would bring about the miracle of miracles and the virgin conception of Jesus. So throughout biblical history, God has worked through miraculous conceptions. All, think back, all the way back to Abraham and Sarah. In their very old age, God brought about a miraculous conception in the birth of their son, that, the son that God had promised, Isaac. Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, was barren until God answered Isaac, Isaac's prayer and caused her to conceive and bear a son. And 1 Samuel, Hannah, as you remember, was barren, and the Lord caused her to bear a son, Samuel. In Luke chapter 1, Mary, Mary's relative Elizabeth and Zechariah, well advanced in years, we're told, 
and God miraculously causes Elizabeth to conceive and bear a son, John the Baptist, who would prepare the way for Christ. So, so God has been working throughout biblical history with miraculous conceptions. But the miraculous conception of Mary as a virgin far surpasses all of those miracles. All of those miracles had a biological father and mother. Jesus, though, was born of a virgin without a human father by the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit. So the virgin birth revealed the truth that the angel Gabriel said to Mary in Luke 1.37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. Christmas is real tangible proof that nothing will be impossible with God. In, in the early 20th century in America, theological liberals, boo, um, they, they began openly denying the virgin birth along with the other miracles of the Bible. They were attempting to demythologize the Bible because, in their view, modern man just couldn't be expected to believe in miraculous things like virgin births, seas parting, water turning into wine. We're, we're beyond that now in our, our, our modern understanding of things. So they attempted to demythologize the Bible. Uh, Harry Emer Emerson Fosdick was, was an um, example of this. Uh, he was a, a pastor at the First Presbyterian Church in New York, and he summed up his view on the virgin birth when he said, the first disciples phrased the birth of Jesus in terms of a biological miracle, but that our modern minds can't use. So we're, we're, we're beyond that. We're too smart for that kind of thing. That's, that's the language that they used, but we're, we're, our minds can't make use of that any longer. But even though Fosdick would probably call himself a Christian, Christians have been always supernaturalists. We reject naturalism, which holds that everything that exists is the natural physical world. That's it. So naturalists will deny the possibility of a virgin birth because they, they, that implies the existence of God. That implies the existence of miracles. So naturalism begins with the biased belief that God and the supernatural cannot exist. It ultimately is a worldview that is closed-minded to ever considering the claims for the miraculous, which there are many. And there is uh, much good evidence for the miraculous, but they're closed off to that. They say that kind of stuff just doesn't happen. But if you begin with acknowledging a God who created all things out of nothing, as Genesis 1 clearly teaches, and as some of the greatest scientific minds in history have fully believed and embraced, then you should have no problems believing any of the miracles that follow, right? So if God can speak galaxies into existence, he can cause a virgin to conceive. That, that's easy stuff, right? That's easy stuff for God to do. So our response to God's miracles in Scripture and to his creative power that we see throughout Scripture and in the virgin birth 
it should be not of doubt, not of condescension, condescension, but awe and wonder and trust, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now, I want to deal just briefly with uh, Matthew um, and, and Matthew bringing us back to Isaiah 7.14. Uh, look again at verses 22 to 23. It says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. All right, so we can spend easily an hour uh, talking about how uh, Matthew understands Isaiah 7.14 and how Christ is fulfilling that prophecy in Isaiah 7.14. We don't have that, that time today, so if you want to talk more, we could talk about after the service, and you could definitely feel free to dig more deeply into it than we're able to cover this morning. But Matthew is quoting from Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 7.14, uh, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So, to begin with, there are faithful interpreters who believe that Isaiah's prophecy was a single fulfillment that only ever spoke of the virgin birth of Christ. Others, as, as I hold, believe that there is a double fulfillment to this prophecy. And you could yeah, definitely go to Isaiah 7.14. Let, let's go there together. I'll be pointing out a few verses there and the context there. I think, as we'll see, um, that we are to understand Isaiah's prophecy as a double fulfillment, both as a fulfillment, uh, uh, an immediate fulfillment in Isaiah's own day, but a greater fulfillment in the birth of Christ. So the immediate context in Isaiah 7 is that King Ahaz, who was a wicked, wicked king, the king of Judah at that time, was under the threat of attack from the kings of Syria and the northern, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. So in response to that crisis, Ahaz is, is filled with fear. So God tells Isaiah, the prophet, to go to Ahaz and tell him not to fear, but that, but that God would not allow the plans of Syria and Israel to succeed against Judah. Isaiah says in 7.7, 7, Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. And as a sign that this would be so, Isaiah prophesies in verse 14, The virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name. Emmanuel. Isaiah continues in verses 15 through 16, he tells Ahaz that before this boy knows how to refuse the evil and do the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So God's people would be delivered from this, this threat and this, this child being born. And before this child even reaches a certain uh, age, that threat would be done away with. That, this seems to be the immediate fulfillment, right, in Isaiah's own day. Um, but Matthew clearly sees something beyond the immediate context of Isaiah's day being fulfilled in the birth of Christ. And to understand this better, we need to take a closer look at the word in Isaiah 7.14 that the ESV translates, and, and most 
Most translations will translate this word virgin. The word that Isaiah uses for virgin can mean virgin, but it has the more general meaning often of a young woman of marriageable age. So we could get really deep in the weeds here. <laughs> and, uh, but um, one commentator that I came across just puts it so succinctly, succinctly, I can't say the word, succinctly and helpfully, and I believe he's right in how he understands um, what's going on in this passage and how Matthew is showing that Christ is the fulfillment of this prophecy. So the Hebrew word Alma, translated virgin, means young woman of marriageable age. In Israelite society, a young woman of marriageable age would have been a virgin. Otherwise, she would have been a prostitute. But the Hebrew word is not the technical term meaning virgin. Isaiah uses the more ambiguous term because of the double reference of this sign. In its immediate reference, the virginity of the mother is not the most significant point. Rather, God is saying that before a child conceived at that time would reach the age of 12 or 13, two nation, the two nations of which Ahaz was so terrified would cease to exist. But in the long term, the sign, higher than heaven and deeper than hell, referred to the coming of Jesus Christ, the true Emmanuel. And the virginity of his mother was vitally important. This is why Isaiah did not use a simple word meaning woman or young woman. So just as a young woman of marriageable age in Isaiah's day would conceive and bear a son and name him Emmanuel, a sign that God would, would deliver Judah from the threat that was surrounding him. God would, as he likes to do, God likes to tell the same kinds of stories. God would again do a similar but greater thing in the future, where he would cause not just a young woman of marriageable age to conceive, but he would indeed cause a virgin to conceive and bear a son. And this son would be the true and greater Emmanuel, God with us. I think that's what's going on here. I'm willing to be proven otherwise. Faithful interpreters uh, are, are, are on both sides of this, whether this was a single fulfillment or a double, double fulfillment. But I think we should all agree, as Matthew clearly states, Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy that was given to Isaiah some 700 years before. So Jesus be... Uh, Jesus, being born of a virgin, tells us how he came. But second, the very nature of Jesus' name tells us why he came. Number two, a Savior is given. So in verse 21, the angel tells Joseph that he and Mary are to give this baby, the name they are to give this baby is Jesus. Now, Jesus is not a Hebrew name. That is the Greek version of a Hebrew name. Does anyone know what that Hebrew name is? Joshua. Joshua. So, for instance, in Hebrews 4.8, where the writer of Hebrews talks about, is speaking about Joshua from the Old Testament, the Greek name that he uses there is Jesus, Jesus. It is, it's the same name. So, if, if Jesus had a, an Israeli driver's license, uh, it would have had on it Joshua. 
That was his name. So anybody here named Joshua, you're in good company. You're in good company. So uh, you share the same name as, as Jesus. I always thought it was weird that Hispanic families would name their kids uh, Jesus, but <laughs> it's, it, it, it's, it's a normal name. It was an ordinary name, uh, just as Joshua was an ordinary name. So the, the Hebrew name Joshua means this, Yahweh is salvation, or Yahweh saves. That's why the angel says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So there, there was not anything unique about Jesus being named Jesus or Joshua. It was actually a very common name at this time. One scholar estimates that it was probably the sixth most common name at that time. So probably in any town in Israel, there would have been a number of boys or young men running around who were named Joshua. But what made Jesus so unique is not that when you saw that, that young boy named Joshua, whose name meant Yahweh saves, but with that when you saw Jesus, you saw the one through whom Yahweh would save, the actual Savior of his people's sins, which is the kind of salvation that Jesus would bring. In verse 21, the angel says to Joseph, he will save his people from their sins. The messianic expectation that people had for the coming Christ during this time, for most, was a military savior. So they were under Roman occupation, Roman oppression. What they were looking for was a military savior to come, a Davidic king to come and deliver them from Roman oppression. That's not what Jesus came to do, ultimately. What he came to do was not to deliver Israel from their Roman oppressors, but to deliver Israel from their sins. The greatest problem with our world is human sinfulness. It is the cause of everything that is wrong with our world. Adam's sin brought a curse upon this world. It's why everything is falling apart, decaying, growing old. It's why there is every bit of pain and suffering stems from that. And we, as his children, and as his descendants, are all born with sin. And we only add to the pain and suffering and evil in this world by our own sinfulness. That's the greatest need of our world. That's the greatest salvation that can be given. The great British Christian author G.K. Chesterton was one once asked to write an essay to answer the question, what is wrong with the world? His one-sentence answer to that was, I am. And until you can answer that question in the same way, you do not see yourself as God sees you and as you truly are. I am, I am what is wrong with this world. Each of us are what is wrong with this world, and we need to be saved from ourselves and from our sin. Our anger, our hatred toward others, our greed, our, our lust, our self-absorption, our worship of sex and pleasure, our desire for power, our jealousy that others have what we don't have, our rebellion against 
our parents and those who are in authority over us, our self-righteousness. We are what is wrong with this world. But all these various sins all stem from our great sin is that, and that we have rejected the rightful rule of God over us. Instead of fearing this God and obeying this God, we, we run from him. We rebel against him. We disobey him. And we rightfully deserve his condemnation. We rightfully deserve his judgment. We rightfully deserve hell. But here's the wonder of Christmas. It's the wonder of God's love. God loves sinners enough to send his own son as a savior for sinners, to deliver them from their sins. He loves them enough to rescue those who were destined for hell and to give them heaven. He loves them enough to take the penalty for sin that they deserved and to place it on his own son on the cross. And this was a salvation not for Jesus' own people from Israel, but for his people from every nation. So that now all, because of the perfect life of Christ, because of his death for our sins and his resurrection from the dead, anyone who calls on the name of Christ will be saved. When it comes to Jesus as, as Savior, there are two, two errors we can make. First error, I'm too good to need a Savior. No one likes to be called self-righteousness, but this, this is at the most fundamental and deep level, self-righteousness and self-salvation. A person looks at themselves and sees themselves not for who they truly are, but for who they want to imagine themselves to be. They, they look at their moral achievements, their acts of kindness, but they're completely blinded to the sin and the darkness that's within their hearts. If you're in that state where you, you think that you're too good to need a Savior, I pray that God will open your eyes, that he will cause you to see the darkness that really is within your heart. And that he will convict you of your sins and, and convince you of your need for a Savior in Jesus. The other error that we can make with Jesus as Savior is that I'm too sinful to be saved. Maybe that's where some of you are today. But sin is the reason why Jesus came into the world. Sinners are the reason why Jesus came into the world. I, it doesn't matter what you've done. It can be forgiven at the cross. Jesus loves sinners, and there's no sin that cannot be forgiven. There's no sinner that Jesus will push away if they come to him in repentance and faith. So if that's you today, if you view yourself as too sinful to be forgiven, stop believing that lie and believe the words of Christ that whoever comes to him, he will never cast out receive his forgiveness in eternal life. And Christian, let, let this Christmas continue to teach you to lean on Jesus as your Savior. See, you don't, none of us move on from needing a Savior after we become a Christian. We keep on sinning. And it's only the blood of Jesus that can cleanse us from our sins. We don't need to keep being saved and returning to Christ as Savior, but we need to keep clinging to him and running to him as the Savior for our sins. Every day, you prove 
that you need a Savior. And although we, we may tend to think otherwise, Jesus never tires of being your Savior. I am amazed that Jesus is not tired of being my Savior. I keep coming back to him with more and more sins to be forgiven, and he keeps forgiving. And he, he's never tired of being what his name says he is. The Lord saves. As long as that's his name, as long as his name is Jesus, he will never tire of being your Savior. So Matthew, in these few short verses, has shown us that Jesus was miraculously born of a virgin, and then he came as the Savior for sinners. And lastly, he shows that, that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. So in Jesus, our God descends to be with us. Look again at verse 23. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew, because he's writing in Greek, he translates the Hebrew word Emmanuel, which means simply, as he says, God with us. In that name, Emmanuel, we see a clear affirmation of the deity of Jesus, right? God with us. John makes that clear as well in John 1.1. 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But not only is the name Emmanuel an affirmation of the deity of Christ, it is, it's like a one-word sermon that preaches to us of God's desire to be with us, to be near us. I, I do not understand why God would desire to be with us. I mean, look at us. Look at our world. Collectively, individually, with all of our sin, with all of our rebellion against him. We've done all that we can to run from God, but he runs after us and he pursues us. We've done all that we can to try to live without God and he comes to live with us. He comes pursuing us. And he's always been doing this. We see this in the Old Testament of God's desire to be with his people. The tabernacle in the wilderness. In the center of the camp of Israel. God is communicating his desire to dwell in the midst of his people. And in the temple in Jerusalem, God again there gives the symbol of his presence with his people. The God of heaven was dwelling with his redeemed people on earth. But that tabernacle, that tent, that temple were only shadows of the true reality of what God had planned in order to truly be with his people. For God, a tent would not be enough. Bricks and mortar and gold would not be enough. God would do the unthinkable. He would come to dwell with us by becoming one of us. God the Son would enter a virgin's womb, taking on a fully human nature. As John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Philippians 2, 6 through 7 says, though Jesus was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is what theologians have called the hypostatic union. Hypostatic simply means personal. The personal union. Jesus was one 
person with two natures. He was fully divine. He was fully human. He was the God-man, the Son of God for all of eternity. He had always been fully divine, but in the incarnation, he became fully human. I love how pastor and theologian Sam Storms puts this truth poetically. He writes this, the word became flesh. God became human. The invisible became visible. The untouchable became touchable. Eternal life experienced temporal death. The transcendent one descended and drew near. The unlimited became limited. The infinite became finite. The immutable became mutable. The unbreakable became fragile. Spirit became matter. Eternity entered time. So to reveal himself to us, God has not only given us a book. He has come in a body. He has taken on flesh to reveal himself to us. So in Jesus, in his life on earth, you saw perfectly the heart and the character of God. You saw the holiness of God in his perfection and purity. You heard the voice of God in his teaching. You saw the love of God as he welcomed and ate with sinners and as he died on the cross for sinners. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And as Jesus is introduced by Matthew at the, be the very beginning of his gospel, by calling him God with us, Matthew ends his gospel with Matthew 28, 20. And the words of Jesus to his disciples, Behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. Jesus has not ceased to be God with us. Though he is physically present in heaven, he is still present with us until the end of the age when he will return and we will forever be with him. Then we in our resurrection bodies will be able to see Jesus with our eyes. We will be able to touch him with our hands and bow down and worship before his throne and forever live in the new creation with the one who is named Emmanuel. Every Christmas brings us closer to that. And as the hearts of Israel long for their Messiah to come, so our hearts should long for the Messiah to return. And when he does, it will, for all of eternity, be God with us. Maybe this Christmas season, though, it doesn't feel like God is with you. You feel like God is far away. Maybe your trials and stresses of life make it feel that God doesn't care. Maybe your unanswered prayers make it feel like God is not listening to you. Maybe the loss of a loved one has left you with such loneliness and you feel like God is far away. Christian Jesus is Emmanuel. He is your Emmanuel. Christ is with you even when you don't feel him with you. He's faithful even when you can't see or understand his plan. And even when he's silent, he is still holding you in his arms. Christian, believe against all your feelings that Christ is with you always. And when your life is over and you stand 
in his presence, then you will know the truth that Christ was always God with you. And for all of eternity, you will know Christ as God with you, with no more doubts. May God give us all faith to believe Christ is, even today, God with us. And how amazing it is to know that God desires to be with us. That God desires to be with you. That God desires to be with me. He doesn't need us, but he desires communion with us, his loved and redeemed people. So how easy it is for us to go through the Christmas season and to drift from communion with Christ. Running around for gifts crowds out God's word. Bad Hallmark movies crowd out the, the Christmas story. That's a bad trade-off right there. Right. Busy weekends crowd out gathering with God's people to worship Christ. It's okay to do less this year for you and your family in order to know and treasure Christ more. The greatest gift that we've ever been given is God with us. Enjoy his presence as he reveals himself to you in his word. Enjoy his presence as you draw near to him in this season through prayer. And enjoy his presence as even now we worship as God's people in God's presence. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, all of this speaks to us of your your great love for us. I do not know why you love sinners, but you do. I cannot fathom why you would search and seek to save the lost, but you have. Lord Jesus, we praise you today as the one who was miraculously born of a virgin. We praise you that you did not shun the virgin's womb, but came even in such a humble and lowly state for us and for our salvation. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the Savior for sinners like us. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are God with us. May this season, this Christmas season that we enter in together, Help us to cherish you and treasure you, Jesus. More than all the things on this earth, reveal to us your glory. Reveal to us the wonder of your birth and of the incarnation. And God, help us now as we respond in prayer to sing joyfully your praise and to see in Jesus our all in all. Amen.